Let's pray together. Father, we confess that you exist, that you are real, that there is so much more to reality than what our two little eyes can glimpse. This is a room full of souls who will live forever in either eternal joy or eternal misery. And that means the stakes are incredibly high for how we respond to you this morning. And so, Father, I'm praying that by your very real Holy Spirit that you would move us to faith this morning. That you would use this time in your word to cause us to be able to say with greater confidence those words that we just sang. That all we have is Christ. Jesus is our very life. Don't let those just be words, Lord. Let that be an understanding of reality. And would you use your word to bring us to that spot? Lord, for those who don't know you at all, would you use this morning to draw them to their Savior? And for those who are following you, would you use this morning to draw them even closer? Nearer, still nearer, Lord. I'm asking for your help for me. I'm asking for your help for each one of us here to engage, to listen with faith. And we trust you, Lord, to do what you intend to do in this time. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can have a seat. When I grew up, we watched movies on VHS tapes. How many of you remember the frustration of going to watch something and the person before you forgot to rewind the tape? You kids these days have no idea. In our little VHS collection, we had one or two movies like The Great Escape, one of my favorites as a kid, that were so big they didn't fit on a single VHS tape. So you had two VHSs in one big box. And when you finished watching the first one, even though you wanted to keep watching, you, you couldn't. That was a good time for you to get up for an intermission, stretch your legs, get a snack, because you had to rewind the second tape. <laughs> And then you'd keep watching the second half, and that was always a, 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 a break that you didn't want, but you had to deal with. We have preached a few sermons like this in First Peter, and today is another one of them. You can think of today like a part two to last week's sermon. Last week, Jordan took up verses 18 to 23 of chapter 2, which we've just read together. And verse 24 to 25, they're a part of the same key thought. And that's why we, again, just read all of them together. And, and just, you know, last week, Jordan and I already planned that we were going we to do this. And, and the idea in this, in this whole passage begins with slaves submitting to their masters even if their masters are wicked and make them suffer for doing the right thing. And Jordan was right to point out last week that the, the lessons and truths that Peter teaches slaves here are not just for slaves. Slaves were the lowest of the low in, in the Roman world, and, and therefore they're a really good starting point for Peter to address all Christians who together were going to deal with the same kinds of issues that, that Peter addresses here with slaves in this passage. So, so, so you get this, right? By, by addressing slaves, he's talking about issues that all Christians are going to deal with because all Christians at this time were, were on the outsides of society. They were not powerful. It wasn't respectable to be a Christian. It was the opposite. And so his words to slaves 
speak to all of us. So he begins by telling them to be subject to their masters with all respect, even if their masters were bad, even if their masters were so backward that they'd punish them for doing the right thing. And in verse 19 and 20, he explains why. Why in the world should you submit to a master even if he's treating you poorly, even if you're doing the right thing? Why in the world? Well, verse 19 said, it is a gracious thing. And that word grace there speaks the idea of reward, right? As you see that in the, in the, the word credit that's there in, in verse 20 as well. It is a gracious thing, verse 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In very similar way, verse 20 says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, that's just, that's what it means to suffer unjustly. You do good and suffer for it. That is unjust. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So it's not bad to suffer while doing the right thing. It doesn't mean something's wrong. In fact, it's a gracious thing. And to make this point even stronger, Peter says, said in verse 21, to this you have been called. To this, to suffering unjustly, to suffering for doing the right thing, you've been called. This is a calling. Well, how can that be true? How can you be called to something as difficult as this? And the answer was, because Christ also suffered for you. This is verse 21. Leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. See, this is the heart of the matter. Jesus suffered incredibly unjustly. He was treated awfully, though he had literally done no wrong. And as he did that, he wasn't just dying to forgive us and to save us. As Jesus went to the cross, he was also deliberately setting us an example so that we might be like him that we might walk behind him on the path of unjust suffering. And to make this point even more thoroughly, starting in verse 22 and going up to the end of, of our passage, verse 25, Peter breaks into a section about Jesus's unjust suffering. And this section almost borders on poetry. Uh, some commentators or Bible scholars think that, that this was as a part of, a, of an ancient hymn because it's almost like a song. It's, it's beautiful. It's just beautifully written. And what we've got here is one big sentence. There's another one of Peter's big sentences with four key phrases that all began with the word who or whose. Now, in most English translations, we don't see that. In most English translations, we see a whole bunch of separate sentences, and, and they do that to make it more readable. I guess that makes sense. But I really appreciate the, the King James or the New King James on, on this verse, which maintains that, that what I think is quite a beautiful structure in the original Passage. So here's how these verses, starting in verse 21, read in the New King James Version. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth? Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. You see that? See how this, is, how this passage is set up? Peter tells us Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps and then he makes four big statements about the one in whose steps we are to follow. Each one of these phrases, beginning with who or whose, helps unpack the person and the example of Jesus that we've been called to follow. So last week, Jordan's sermon covered the first two of these four statements for us. First, Jesus committed no sin or deceit. And second, he didn't retaliate when people abused him. The word revile, we don't really use that very much today. You could just put, in the, put the word abuse in there. People abused him. He did not 
return or retaliate that. And so today we're considering the third and fourth statements that we find in verse 24 and 25. So you can see on your outline there, it says three. That's not a typo. That's because this is Peter's third statement about the one in whose steps we are to follow. And what he tells us, number three here, is that Christ bore our sins. The beginning of verse 24, Christ bore our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That word himself is important there. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It's emphasizing that though the sins were ours and though Jesus was sinless, he himself bore our sins. Jesus took them on himself. He didn't put our sins onto an animal or some other person. He himself bore our sins in his body. Peter gets this language of bearing sin from Isaiah 53. We've seen fairly often how Peter draws from the Hebrew prophets. And and you might want to actually turn to Isaiah 53 if you've got your Bible. And if you don't, you can always grab one from the back as you come in. You might want to keep a finger in Isaiah 53. We're going to be turning to it a, a couple of times. Isaiah 53, one of the, one of the clearest key passages in what, what we call the Old Testament about Jesus and his death on the cross. And Isaiah 53 uses the language of bearing sin in at least three places. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53:11, and he shall bear their iniquities. Iniquities is another word for sin. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many. And these verses and these connections help us understand what Peter means when he says that Jesus bore our sins. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus bore our sins? It's not not immediately obvious. But these verses help us understand that because according to Isaiah 53, Jesus bearing our sins means that Jesus suffered the punishment for our sins. That's, that's, that's what it means in Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or discipline punishment that brought us peace. So for Jesus to bear our sins, what that means is that Jesus bore the punishment for our sins. That's what it means in Isaiah 53. In his body, he suffered and died the crushing punishment that our sins deserved under the judgment of God, like we've been singing about this morning. And and this, this truth about, about God's judgment, even we could use the word curse for our sin, is even made more clear by Peter's phrase here in verse 24 when he says, on the tree. That's not just a, a throwaway phrase. This is a, an, an echo of, of an earlier passage, Deuteronomy 21, 22. Here's, here's what this says, Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, And he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is a pretty awful but pretty common practice in the ancient world. When someone was put to death for a sin, so when when they committed a, a, a capital crime, something receiving the death sentence, like, for example, they killed another person, and so they were put to death, their body would be displayed on a pole up high for everyone to see as a warning to everybody else. Don't do that. And the Romans took this idea, got it from the Persians, and, and made it even worse as they developed the cross where they didn't just kill the man quickly and then display his body, but rather they nailed him up to a cross piece on a pole so that he died as he was being displayed publicly. 
We know, we know about crucifixion, how slow and painful and awful it was. But the worst part for the Jewish people is that dying on a tree, on a pole, meant that you were cursed by God. And Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cursed judgment tree. Jesus was cursed by God, not for his sins, but for our sins. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And this is the Jesus in whose steps we are to follow. Think of, think of Peter's argument here. Follow in the steps of the one who surrendered himself to the judgment of God and allowed himself to be punished in our place, in your place, on the cross. That's the one in whose steps you are to follow. Now, before Peter moves on to his, his, his fourth point, Peter tells us what the purpose of Christ's sin-bearing work on the cross was, or at least what a purpose of his sin-bearing work on the cross. Why did Jesus do this? What was his intended goal or one of his intended goals? And the answer to those questions is given right there in the second part of verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, so here's, here's where it's headed. Here's the goal, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We often talk about the fact that Jesus died so we didn't have to. There's another sense in which Jesus died so that we would die. But die in what way? Not dying for our sins under the judgment of God, but dying to sin. Don't, don't miss here that Peter is telling us that Jesus' death on the cross has real meaningful effects on our life. Just think about it in this way. If you're on a sports team and one of your team members scores the winning goal, that has very meaningful effects on you. You share in his victory. And similarly, in a much greater way, when Jesus died for his people, when they're united to him by faith, by faith, we, we, there's this beautiful whole New Testament teaching about us being united to Jesus, like, like a married couple, like children to a father. There's so many ways of describing it. But when this happens, we share in the effects of what he did on the cross. His death and his life impact our lives in real and measurable ways. It doesn't just change our status. We don't just go from guilty to forgiven. It actually affects our lives. And Peter describes it this way when he says that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus died for your sin so that you might die to your sin. That's what he's saying. Jesus was raised from the dead to new life so that you might also live to new life. Douglas Moo in a study Bible said, the purpose of Jesus' atoning death is that we might stop sinning. Not that we might continue to sin with a false sense of well-being. I wonder how many Christians still think that Jesus' death on the cross, that God's grace means you have permission to sin and it's not a big deal anymore. We talked about this a bit at the parenting workshop last Sunday in relation to our children. And, and here's what we're seeing here. Grace does not mean, God's grace does not mean you have the option of choosing to disobey and it's no big deal. That, that, that's not a definition of grace that we see anywhere in the Bible. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cursed tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So together, this is Peter's third statement about Jesus. Jesus is the one in whose steps we follow, the one who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, still in verse 24, Peter's fourth statement about Jesus in these passages, he is the one whose wounds have healed us. By his wounds you have been healed, says that last sentence there in verse 24. But remember, if, if, if we were to be super literal here, kind of the way the New King James does, by whose wounds you have been healed. Who, 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 whose. This language of being healed by someone else's wounds comes from Isaiah 53. I don't know if your finger is still there or not, but Isaiah 53, verse 5. We've read the first part already. Let's read the whole verse. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's one of the most precious verses in the Bible. It just so captures this, the way in which Jesus was our substitute. What he did was for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. But what does Isaiah mean by healed? What does Isaiah mean when he says, you've been healed? Some people use this verse to say that, yay, Christians are never ever going to get sick because Jesus' death on the cross has healed us. I know people who have claimed this verse even though they're very clearly suffering from a disease that's not getting better, but they say, no, I've been healed by his wounds, so I'm not sick. That's not what Peter's talking about. It's not what Isaiah is talking about. In Isaiah, as far back as Isaiah chapter 1, sin is described as a wound. So this is even helpful when we think about healing. We, we so often in our modern world get into this therapeutic mindset as if sin is a disease. It's not really something we've done wrong. It's just something that we need to be cured from, like it's a, a, a disorder or something. In Isaiah, sin is described as a wound, an injury. Isaiah 1, 5-6 says, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So you see there how, and I mean, Softening with oil was what they would do in the ancient world with, when you had these wounds. And, and, and you see there that, that Isaiah pictures rebellion against God as sickness, bruises, sores, raw wounds that have not healed properly. Isaiah 6.10, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jeremiah also uses similar language, talking about sin as, a, as, a, as an injury, a wound that needs healing. So the core idea here in Isaiah 53 is that when Jesus was crushed for our sins, the physical wounds that the Messiah bore pay for our sin in such a way that our spiritual wounds are healed. So his physical wounds are the means by which our spiritual wounds, the wound of sin, is healed. Now we know that we're on the right track here because of how Peter explains what it means to be healed in verse 25. He goes on to give an explanation. Peter does not say, by his wounds you have been healed, for you are all sick with various diseases and the common cold, but now in Jesus you're better and you're healthy and you're never going to get sick. No, that's, that's not what Peter says. He says, by his wounds you have been healed, for, okay, so here's the explanation, for you were straying like sheep. There's that rebellion thing, right? Wandering away from the shepherd. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
So this is why we needed healing, right? The wound of our sin that had us wandering away from the shepherd, our rebellion that, that made us not want to stay close to the person who cared for us and was, was leading us. But now, through the Messiah's wounds, we've been cured, healed, which means that we've returned to our good shepherd. So you see, Peter explicitly frames this healing in terms of wandering and returning, rebellion and repentance, staying away from the Lord, drawing close to him again. Now this language of sheep and wandering and returning, like that Peter uses in in verse 25, not surprisingly, he gets it from the Hebrew prophets. Isaiah 53, 6 Isaiah 53, again, this is why your thumb's in there. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what sheep are supposed to do. Follow the shepherd. But we've all said, no, I'm going my own way. And that is the sin from which we need to be healed This connection of, of returning to God and healing, by the way, is also there in Isaiah 6, 6.10, which said, turn and be healed. But th- this idea of God's people being sheep and God being their shepherd, it goes back even further, all the way to the Exodus. Psalm seventy-eight fifty-one to 52 says, He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of the strength of their strength in the tents of Ham. Okay, so that's talking about what he did right before the Exodus. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So what God was doing with his people as he led them out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness was like a shepherd guiding his people like a flock. This is the imagery that David picks up in Psalm 23. See, David doesn't invent this idea of, of, of God being a shepherd. Rather, David's writing him in, himself into the story. He's a part of the people whom God continues to shepherd. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, picks up on this imagery of, of God being the shepherd to his sheep. He rebukes the wicked leaders of Israel and calls them shepherds and says, Verse 4, Ezekiel 34, 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And it's just a, it's a really powerful rebuke that he gives to these leaders. And then he says down in verse 11, Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. You should hear all kinds of echoes to Jesus, right? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Which of you having 99 and the one missing will not go search for? Like, it's all where it comes from. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. Because that would sometimes happen. The wolf shows up, they panic. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And, and, and so this has, been, this has been a picture that the prophets had for centuries that, that God was going to come and be the shepherd of his sheep and gather them together. And what Peter's telling us is what Isaiah was telling us, that this great gathering of the wandering sheep back to the shepherd happens through the good shepherd's wounds. Isn't that astounding? The great gathering together The decisive turn happens as the shepherd himself is wounded for his sheep's rebellion. Isn't that what Jesus told us in John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
And in laying down his life for the sheep, Jesus paves the way to gather the sheep to himself and to make them his. Like Peter says in verse 25, by his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So what we've done in in the last few minutes here is we have walked through this passage in the way that Peter wrote it, and we've tried to follow his train of thought. But there's another way that we could go through this passage, which is just to look at the different things about Jesus that he's told us and consider them one after the other. And that's what we're going to do now. So we're kind of making two passes through this passage. We've walked through it, looking at just the way it's written. And now what we're going to do is, is kind of summarize this. Summarize the, the, the truths about Jesus that we've seen and that we've heard. And not just in these verses, but in the whole passage. And let, let's, just, let's just acknowledge, before we do this, before we shift into this, this summary part, let's just acknowledge that this passage is about Jesus. Starting in verse 22, this has all been about Jesus. And so right there, we just need to acknowledge, don't miss Peter's strategy to help suffering people. What's Peter's strategy to help suffering people is to get their eyes on Jesus. Just this week, I was talking to someone about the way that in our flesh, suffering tends to make us collapse inwards on ourselves. I'm sure you've met someone who's suffering with something and it's all they can talk about. It's all they can see. It's all they know. Our world tends to shrink to the level of our suffering and all we think about is ourselves. I mean, kids, you know this. If someone said something mean to you, it's it's all you can think about. Suffering does not automatically make us holy. Suffering tends to make us selfish and cranky. I mean, just think about how you feel after a bad day at work. Now imagine a Christian slave in the first century with an abusive master. They might live in their house. They don't have the option of quitting and going and finding another job. How are they going to deal with this? It would be so easy, wouldn't it be, to turn inward, to have a pity party, to get self-absorbed? And so Peter says, look at Christ. This is not about you. That's part of what Peter's saying in this passage. You are not the main character here. You're not the main character in this story. Jesus is. Get your eyes on him. Follow in his footsteps. Don't we need that? Kids, teenagers, 20-somethings, middle-agers, seniors, whatever is hard in your life right now, you need to remember it's not about you. You're not the main character here. Get your eyes on Jesus. And who is Jesus? Who is the Jesus that we're supposed to look at and follow? Well, five truths that, 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 that we can look at from this passage The first, again, we're kind of just going through it again, looking at it in slightly different ways. We summarize these truths. The first is that Jesus is our example. We saw this last week. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. And that's not just last week, though. As we got into today's passage, everything he says about Jesus in today's passage, he is saying about the person we are supposed to be following. Remember, that's how this passage is structured. Follow in his steps. Who? So here's what this means. Everything that we looked at today, which was mostly about what Jesus did for us, Peter is still wanting us to think of this as an example to follow. We are to, listen, so here's how this works. We are to follow in the steps of, of the one who bears other people's sins. We are to follow the example of the one who allows himself to be wounded that others might be healed. Now maybe you're uncomfortable with that. Maybe you think, man, I mean, Jesus' death on the cross to save us was so unique that the idea of, of imitating that seems Bizarre. Like, how could we 
imitate or follow the example of Jesus' atoning death. Well, the, the Bible talks this way. Think of Colossians 1.24. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul saw his sufferings for the God's people as a continuation of the sufferings of Jesus for his people. The New Testament talks again and again about sharing in Christ's sufferings. I mean, wasn't this the very invitation of Jesus himself? Matthew 16, what did he do right after he said that he's going to Jerusalem to die for them? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to die? Get in line. So yes, even... Even Jesus' atoning death on the cross is a part of the example that we are to follow. I mean, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now compare that to all the times that we Western Christians complain about how hard this or that ministry is. How we can't really do that because it's not really our gift, or we must not be called to something because we find it challenging. How vocal we tend to be about our preferences. Think about how we react when we get treated poorly, or when we don't feel heard, or when we feel like our rights aren't being respected. We're going to speak to the manager. And everyone in the restaurant's going to know what they did wrong, right? That's how we tend to, tend to act here. Peter is helping us see far more clearly than this. He's helping us see that suffering, being treated poorly by other people, does not mean that something is wrong. It doesn't mean that God has rejected you. The normal Christian life should feel an awful lot like being crucified. Sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways, over and over and over again, because we're following in the steps of the man who bore other people's sins and who took wounds onto himself so that other people might be healed, which means that loving other people is going to involve a lot of painful sacrifice. That's just normal. Is there an area in your life where you've been avoiding God's call for you to do good because you're hiding from the suffering? Are there people you've been avoiding because loving them will be a challenge? What might it look like for you to follow Jesus' example and walk in the steps of him who bore the sins of others? So first truth about Jesus, our example. Second, our sin bearer. Yes, we want to affirm that there is something absolutely unique about Jesus' death that none of us will ever be able to repeat. He really did take our sins onto himself, and he paid for them in an effective and permanent way, and none of us are going to be able to do anything close to that. We, we do not want to say that Jesus setting an example is the only thing that was happening. When he died on the cross, he died to save us in a way that no one can ever repeat. Isn't it so good that Jesus doesn't bear our sins only so much as we follow his example? Just think of just the beautiful gospel logic that we don't follow his example and if we do a good enough job at that, then he'll pay for our sins. But rather, we follow his example because he has already once and for all paid for the sins of his people. Isn't that good news? I wonder... If one of the reasons that many Christians don't step out to boldly follow Jesus' example is they're not quite convinced that Jesus really bore their sins. I suspect that there are a lot of Christians, and maybe some of you in this room, who are still carrying the weight and guilt of your sins on yourself, or at least you're trying you don't really trust that Jesus bore your sins for you on the cross. And so you don't 
really trust that God is for you and not against you. And so you play it safe and you don't obey. You don't have the confidence to suffer with others because you're not convinced that God is truly loving you the whole time. And if that's you, if that's you, I want to encourage you with some words from an old hymn by Augustus Toplady, which helps us understand our freedom from our sin does not depend on our feelings, but on the objective reality that on the cross, the Son of God bore your sins, whether you feel like it or not. If you believe, this happened. And God is not going to punish you again for what he already punished his son for. Listen to these words. From whence this fear and unbelief? Hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of man condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? You already saying, if Jesus paid for my sins, you're not going to charge to me again. Complete atonement thou hast made and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room, that means in my place, endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, effective blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. D.A. Carson told a wonderful story, an imaginary story, about two men the night before the first Passover. And they've just killed their lambs, and they've got bowls full of blood, and they're painting blood on their doorposts. And one of them says to the other, what do you think about this? Do you think this is really going to work? And, and the first man says, oh yeah, I have total confidence. Like, Moses, I believe him, I believe God. He said, we're going to be spared tonight. We're going to be spared. Yep, absolutely. What about you? And the second guy painting the blood on the door says, I don't know. I really don't know. I hope so. This like little bit of blood is going to protect us from the angel of death. I, I'm not so sure. The next morning, between those two men, which of them will still have a firstborn son that's still alive? Both of them. Because it's the blood of the lamb that saved them. And if you trust in Jesus, even if your faith is not near as strong as you would like it to be, if you believe that Jesus bore your sins on the cross, that's what you need to do is believe that he did it. It's not about you to somehow make it happen in your heart. It's you looking and saying, I trust in the blood of Jesus. Would you beg God for the faith to trust that Jesus himself bore your sins in his body on the cross and you don't carry any of them anymore? We stand forgiven at the cross. There's a third truth in this passage that Jesus is our new life. And I'm getting that from the middle of verse 25, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We talked about this a few months ago or a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 1.18 that there is an effective connection and that's a John Piper phrase there but there is an effective connection between the death of Jesus for your sin and your death to sin. Robert Mounts wrote, Christ's death intends to change the way we actually live. Made by the Holy Spirit, there is a connection between Jesus dying for your sin and you dying to sin and living to righteousness. And this connection is made as the Spirit gives us the desire and the power to obey Him, as, as we, He helps us to trust the promises of God instead of the promises of sin. 
This connection between Jesus' death for us and our death to sin, this connection gets, gets strengthened as we walk with the Lord and his people. So much of what we do as a church is about living out this connection together. It all comes back to Jesus. He objectively, apart from how you feel about it, bore the sins of his people in his body on the cross. But he did that so that we would die to sin. So are you experiencing this death to sin and this life to righteousness? Are you walking in the newness of life that Jesus purchased for you? Fourth truth, healer. Jesus is our healer. We've already touched on this already, that his death healed us from the wound of sin. His death healed us from the rebellion that makes us want to run away from him. And we saw that this is about your soul primarily. This is not a guarantee that you're never going to get a cold or never going to get cancer or things like that. But let's also not forget where this goes. Where does a healed soul end up? The healing of your soul is the first step in the process of salvation that Jesus has begun, and it ends with him making all things new. It ends with a new body. So, so yes, we start with the soul, and we end up with a new body and a new creation. See, this, this is what, what's so sad, is the people who focus on healing in this life so often sell themselves short. So you get healed from back pain, but then what? You're still going to die. When we recognize that Jesus has healed our souls from the wound of sin, it orients us to understand that all creation is going to be made new. And yes, we're going to get healed from colds and cancer and back pains in the new creation when Jesus heals all things finally and says, Behold, I make all things new. For now, we enjoy the resurrection he's brought to our hearts and we enjoy the healing even as we wait for the ultimate healing. Do you know that your soul has been healed by the one who bore wounds for you? Is your hope set on the grace that will be brought to you at his return? Fifth, Jesus, our leader. And I'm getting the word leader as a summary of those words at the end of verse 25, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When we think about Jesus being our shepherd, what do we think about? I wonder if, if... if you've been around the church, when you hear the word shepherd, it's often very closely associated with the idea of care. Like if someone says that, that, that someone has a real shepherding heart, we imagine that that means that they really care about people and they love taking care of them. And that's there. I mean, we saw that in Ezekiel 34, right? About God caring for his sheep. But more fundamental at the basement level to the idea of shepherding is the idea of leadership. See, in the ancient world, Sheep weren't kept in a farm. Sheep and shepherds had to be mobile as shepherds would lead the sheep from one place to the next to find waters and pasture that you didn't have just all food and water all the place. You had to go from one place to the next. And so a sheep's survival depended on them following their shepherd. So that's why in so many of the passages in the Bible that talk about shepherding, it talks about leadership. Then he led out his people like sheep. He leads me beside still waters. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And so this leadership aspect of shepherding is, is, is right here in Peter's use of the word overseer in verse 25, shepherd and overseer. This is the same word that's used of church overseers. In 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Jesus is the overseer who leads his people. We follow by listening to his voice in scripture and doing what he says. Do you follow Jesus' voice? When he tells you to do something in his word, do you argue and drag your feet or do you listen and obey and follow? We've just looked at five truths about Jesus. It's so hard to know how to, how, to, how to sum this all up. I hope that the Lord has helped you marvel at your Savior, marvel at the accomplishment of what he did on the cross, how multifaceted it is. It's not just, he didn't just do one thing. He did so much in his death on the cross. 
And as we've looked at these five truths about Jesus, I've been asking us some questions to prompt us to draw near to Jesus and to consider our relationship with him. So there may be some of you listening today who don't yet know Jesus. And so your answer to these questions, do you know, do you know, are you following? Your answer is no. I just want to encourage you this morning, if you are hearing the voice of your shepherd, I don't mean that in some mystical way. What I mean is, do you want to believe? Do you want to obey? Do you want to say, yeah, I want that to be true for me? Do you want that? I encourage you as strongly as I can. Don't wait. Draw near to your shepherd. Say, Jesus, I I want that. I want to, I believe. I want to follow you. Obey his command to believe and follow him back to safety. If you are following Jesus, maybe some of these questions have have, have caused you some conviction. Receive that as, as as the voice of the shepherd calling you back onto the path behind him. If you know that there's areas in your life where you've been wandering away and doing your own thing, would would you hear his voice and say, "Shepherd, I'm I'm going to follow you." Finally, if you, if you do know Jesus and you have been following him, embrace the gift, embrace the encouragement of being able to say yes to some of these questions, right? Like we've asked these questions like, do you know that he paid for your sins? We should be able to say, yes, I do. do you, are you following your Savior? We should be able to say, not perfectly, but, but yes, I am. Receive the encouragement of that. Even if you're not yet where you want to be, know that you're not where you used to be. And you have been saved by your shepherd. You're following him, even as he's led you through some valleys of the shadow. Even when you've wandered, he's come to get you. And you know you're a good shepherd. I hope today encourages you to fix your eyes on Jesus in a a more focused way. Determined to follow his example, trust his atonement, live in the newness of his life, receive his healing, and follow his leading. Let's pray. Good shepherd, thank you that you laid down your life for your sheep, that our sins have been paid for. There's no double jeopardy. We're not going to get charged again for sins that you paid for, that we really are free and we're free to follow your example. We're free to love like you loved. We're free to not sin like you didn't sin. We're free to be yours. And so I'm praying, Lord, you use your word this morning by your spirit to draw each one of us more closely behind you, following in your steps. Jesus, we thank you that we get to follow in the steps of of someone like you. There's no one else we'd rather follow. There's no one else we'd whose voice we'd rather hear. There's there's no other Savior we'd want. Jesus, you're, you're everything. Draw us close to you today, I pray. Amen.